Latter-day Peace Studies is produced by peace-loving members of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Any views expressed herein are not to be taken as official positions of the Church or its authorities. Latter-day Peace Studies presents Come Follow Me. I'm Christopher Hurtado. And I'm Ben Peterson. Thank you for joining us as we discuss this week's reading of Come Follow Me as outlined by The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Our hope is that as we discuss the scriptures, we will come to a more perfect understanding through experiencing the atonement of Jesus Christ and find greater peace in our lives. Well, Ben, it's good to be back on the mic with you to talk about Jeremiah this week. Yeah, Jeremiah is a new beast here to tackle. Yeah, so we're only covering the first, what, 30 chapters? 29, yeah. 29. As usual, we're going to cover all of the chapters in the book, not just those assigned in the Come Follow Me curriculum. And so we're going 1 through 29 today. I wanted to talk a little bit about the context of Jeremiah. We've mentioned the first and second Isaiah and the last two episodes on Isaiah we've recorded, but I'm going to mention it again, just in case it's not clear, in case somebody didn't hear it. You know, we have the first 39 chapters of Isaiah seem to be written by a different author than the rest of Isaiah, and there may even be a third Isaiah in the last 11 chapters. My daughter asked me, how do you know this, Dad? I know it from the scholars. How do the scholars know it? Well, they see different writing styles. She says, couldn't that be the translation, Dad? I said, well, no, that actually wouldn't show up in the translation. That's something that doesn't show up in the translation because the translator is one and the same person, whereas the authors are two or three or more different people. The book of Isaiah is a little bit of a challenge to our concept of a book, but we do call it the book of Isaiah, and it does have these two main authors, and they happen to have Jeremiah in between them. Even though he comes after Isaiah, the book of Jeremiah comes after the book of Isaiah in our Bible, the context is Jeremiah's writing between the two Isaiahs. So the first Isaiah Somewhere around 700 BCE, the Assyrians are bearing down, the northern kingdom is being invaded, Isaiah I is warning southern Judah, you're next. Jeremiah comes in around the same time, and he's writing on the same thing. And then you get second Isaiah, and Jeremiah is there through the fall of Jerusalem, 586 BCE. He's there saying what he's saying and doing what he's doing. Now you get second Isaiah. Second Isaiah is in exile. And he's writing about a return. So the first Isaiah is telling you, you're going to go into exile. Second Isaiah is telling you, but fear not. There will be a remnant. There will be a return. There will be a restoration. There will be new heavens and a new earth, right? All of that. And he mentions a suffering servant, which we've already covered in the second half of Isaiah. And that suffering servant, he says, will go like a lamb to the slaughter and the people will try to cut him off from the land of the living. And these are words that this is the exact wording that Jeremiah uses about himself. And we quoted that last time, and we can maybe bring that up again this time. But we did quote it last time. And so he says these things of himself. And so it seems, even though we also get in Isaiah 42, that the suffering servant would be Israel, the nation, the entire nation, then the poet personifies that in Jeremiah. It could be personified in Jacob, who is Israel, is later personified in Jesus. There's also Jeremiah again, and then there's Abinadi and Joseph Smith. So many different figures have personified the suffering servant. You and I, Ben, we even said of the remnant, those who went into exile and suffered in that way, suffer for everyone in some sense. They are the suffering servant. They stand in just as an individual can when this is personified. They can stand in 
part of Israel can stand in for all of Israel, just like one person like Jeremiah could or Jesus. And then what happens is as they return, that remnant that's gone into suffering and all the trials and everything, they come back and they imbibe the community with this identity, this preserved, distilled, enlivened identity that then pushes them into the second temple period and preserves that identity throughout the rest of their history. Yeah, it's super important to them coming back to Jerusalem that they, again, having been forewarned of the invasion as they see it from the prophets because they didn't repent, they want to make sure that this doesn't happen again. And so they want to get it right this time. And so now we have the enter Deuteronomy, right? We've already covered Deuteronomy earlier in the Bible, but it turns out that during this time of King Josiah, it was either found and then it helps to institute Josiah's religious reforms, or it was written in this time so that maybe there's a collaboration perhaps between Jeremiah and the author of Deuteronomy, or Jeremiah is the author of Deuteronomy. Even that's possible in our, you know, studies. And these things aren't uncontroversial, right? <laughs> right. Yeah. They're not uncontroversial. And then, of course, Jeremiah, if that is the case, then why would you need both? They're separate, right? One thing is, you need somebody to call you to repent and to tell you you need to do things differently, right? That's the idea of repentance. And then that would leave you with, okay, well, what do I do? And the answer is, here's Deuteronomy, so you can do it right. And so that's sort of the broad strokes of the context, Ben, from my point of view. What would you say? What would you add to that? So Jeremiah is called the weeping prophet. Yeah. And there is a lot to this concept. When I first was reading some of that commentary about that, it reminded me of Psalm 137 that I referenced back. I don't think I even talked about it when we did Psalms, which is odd because this is one of my favorite, but previously. And here's Psalm 137, at least the beginning of it. By the rivers of Babylon, there we sat down and there we wept when we remembered Zion. On the willows there, we hung up our harps. For there, our captors asked us for songs and our tormentors asked us for mirth, saying, Sing us one of the songs of Zion. How could we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? If I forget you, O Jerusalem, let my right hand wither. Let my tongue cling to the roof of my mouth, if I do not remember you, if I do not set Jerusalem above my highest joy. Here in this psalm, we have the recounting of the people and their mourning at their loss at this catastrophe of going into exile. And this is the experience that Jeremiah is having in foreshadowing of this event, right? He's experiencing all these things as he's preaching to the people and foretelling of the destruction, and then also pleading with them to repent, but also knowing they're not going to repent, right? So what is this Zion, Ben? You know, we have this idea of Zion. We have the idea of a new Jerusalem. Isaiah ends with the new heavens and the new earth. And we can compare that with the end of the entire Christian Bible, the end of the New Testament with Revelation. We get a new heaven and new earth and a new Jerusalem comes down from heaven. Zion is the name of a hill in Israel, in Jerusalem. Mm -hmm. This was mm -hmm. first, Mount Zion was first used in the Hebrew Bible as the city of David and later the Temple Mount. And so I think we can say when we're talking about Zion, we're talking about Jerusalem. And maybe even we're evoking the Temple in some sense. We get yeah. later on in this text in Jeremiah, we get the house of the Lord. How would you read that, Ben? Literally, Zion is this hill 
You know, that's the name of it. And so then it starts getting layers of meaning because you have this hill and then Jerusalem becomes referred to as Zion. And then Zion takes on all these extra identities, which are the place where the temple is. And then Zion is the identity of the people as a whole or depicting a society that is in a covenant relationship with God or a society that is in proper order. And this becomes a cosmos wherein you have Zion, which is a properly ordered society, and Babylon, which is a disordered society or a tyrannical society. And then you have the wilderness that separates them, right? And then in many of the prophecies, you have this highway that's in the wilderness. And so there's this path that goes between what is this properly ordered society and Babylon, which is the disordered or the tyrannical society, and then chaos is in the middle. But then you have this highway, which is the strip of order where God can lead from one to the other. And if you're in sin, you're going to be led from Zion to Babylon. And if you're returning, you can go the other way, back to Zion to yeah. returning. And so that's sort of just how it's it's ordered there, this concept of Zion. In the Latter-day Saint tradition, it takes on even more meaning when we have the story of Enoch and, and everything like that, right? Yeah, I love how you how you place those layers one on top of the other for us from the bottom. Obviously, at the bottom, you have, again, Mount Zion. Then you have that that's in Jerusalem, so that then Mount Zion is Jerusalem. Then it's the people. As Shakespeare said, what is the city but the people? If I say Jerusalem, I can mean the people of Jerusalem, just like when I said Israel and I meant the people, right? The nation of Israel, not Jacob. The top of Mount Zion, symbolically, and then maybe in some contexts, even literally, is where the temple is or the garden, right? And so when we talked about Genesis, we talked about how the garden is on top of a mountain. Ascending that mountain is where you reattain Eden. And that's the symbolism of the temple too. Even when they built their temple, they had symbolism of trees and everything within the temple that signified this concept of this walled garden. Yeah, and that mountain, of course, is the sacred mountain, which places it at the center of the world in sacred geography. We mm -hmm. talked about that a little bit last time. I can't not mention Dante, Ben. You know, in yeah. Dante's cosmography, you have, first of all, the trip through hell that everyone's usually familiar with, Inferno, right? Not so much Purgatorio. And the way Dante writes Inferno is you're supposed to come out of it depressed. And you don't even realize this until you start reading Purgatorio. So don't just put down Inferno and go to bed. Pick up yeah. and read the beginning of Purgatorio. All we read was Inferno. We didn't even go on to anything else. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So it's just depressing, right? But the point is you have this hell is this pit that God created. It's the first thing he creates in Dante, right? By hurling Satan down to earth, right? He creates this crater which becomes the pit of hell, and it pushes out the other side of the world, Mount Purgatory. And so when you climb to the top of Mount Purgatory, you reach the Garden of Eden. So I think it's interesting that that climb up the Sacred Mount, which in this case becomes Mount Purgatory, I think Dante shows us that there are some things, we have to be purified as we climb this mountain, mm -hmm. right? This is what Purgatory is about. You take off the sins one by one from his forehead in the poem, he gets guided through hell by Virgil and then up Mount Purgatory by this pure, unrequited love of his youth, which I think we can all relate to in some way. Yeah, and that ascension up the mountain 
finds its way into all kinds of traditions. In ours, we have our ascension through the temple. And so we have this ascension text where we're going through telestial, terrestrial, celestial spheres, you know, to return to, it's a return back to that Garden of Eden. <laughs> you know, that, that, that's sort of a deeper context for Jeremiah here and, and what's going on with the people when they're going into exile. You know, I talked about Jeremiah being the weeping prophet. Jeremiah complains to the Lord about his persecution. And the response from the Lord is, it's going to get worse. But don't fear. But don't fear. Yeah. Because it's going to get better. Jeremiah's call as a prophet evokes similar themes to what we find with Moses and then with Enoch, with Gideon as well. When the Lord calls him, Jeremiah says, I'm too young and I don't know how to speak. It's exactly what Moses says. That's what Enoch says. And then the Lord says, no, you're not. I'm calling you. You're supposed to do this and gives him some sort of sign. With Moses, he does a thing with his staff and with his hand. With Enoch, he tells Enoch to go put clay on his eyes and wash it off, and then Enoch sees something. And then with Jeremiah, the Lord touches his mouth, and it puts words in Jeremiah's mouth. So now Jeremiah can speak. And so this is the whole idea here is that the Lord is going to give Jeremiah everything that he is supposed to say. Jeremiah could possibly be the Deuteronomist. There's a part in Deuteronomy where Moses says that the Lord's going to raise up a prophet like him. And as Christians, we take that to refer to Jesus. And even, you know, in some of our scripture, Jesus says that's him. Jeremiah, in a lot of ways, is seen as a fulfillment of Moses. He's seen as a second Moses. And there's a lot of parallels between the life of Jeremiah and the life of Moses. Absolutely. So the book of Jeremiah, the whole text of it is engulfed in suffering. It's overwhelming the people. It's overwhelming Jeremiah. And then it expands to overwhelm the whole cosmos, like the whole order of things. And then the creator himself. And we'll get to that in a bit. This is a catastrophe. It's a true end of the world. This Babylonian exile is going to happen. It's a true end of the world in any sense that maps to reality. Yeah. And that catastrophe, you know, that's a a word from Greek tragedy. And it's something that happens, right? The kata is the down, right? This is a fall. Things have gone south, right? Things have gone down. I remember listening to Jordan Peterson's series of lectures on the Bible, right? Interpreted in deep psychology. I remember him pointing out that even going to Egypt, which is going down, just represents things going, well, south, right? We say things go south, right? It's the same idea. Symbolically, this is like things have gone wrong. Either they went there because they were in trouble and they're running away, or where they went there and going there caused the trouble. You can think of even the king of southern Judah who wants to make a, an alliance with Egypt, and that's just trouble. This actually plays out in Jeremiah's life. And Jeremiah isn't just preaching, but like his life becomes a metaphor in a sense. He acts out everything that he's preaching as well. Like all the suffering and all the experience actually happens to him. He's not just talking like maybe Isaiah is, right? These things are actually happening to Jeremiah. So he's persecuted, he's imprisoned, but he is freed by the Babylonians. He is taking this journey, just like the suffering servant, that the people as a whole are going to take. But then towards the end of his life, he goes down into Egypt and that's where he ends up dying. Ben, you've talked about Jeremiah's life a little bit more maybe than Isaiah's or others. We don't know a lot about many prophets, but we actually know quite a bit about Jeremiah, and you can get it straight out of the text. We don't even have to mention it here, right? If you just read the text, 
because Jeremiah himself is acting out, playing the part of the suffering servant, and he's doing it alongside with Israel, if not in general, at least in part, as we've already covered, right? The idea that there's all of the people going to exile, but they suffer and some of the people return. In some sense, there's a purification in this, right? This is the idea that you go and you burn off. I think I'm using language from Dante, but I'm thinking again of that climb of Mount Purgatory where you're going to come back via that highway to the Temple Mount, to Zion, right, to Jerusalem. Remember, we ended Isaiah last time with an image of a filthy garment that Tara Lee Cobble said could be read as a menstrual rag, right? And we talked about the the ritual impurity of menstruation, and that there has to be ritual purity when it comes to going to the temple. Hmm. We do something in our temple experience, we have washings and anointings. Right? Washings That's part and anointings. Of, yeah, before yeah. you go through the endowment, this is part of the preparation, which is a ritual purification. And by the way, we can tell it's ritual because it's become less and less literal, right? Even what was originally ritual, where you can imagine Brigham Young and, and company bathing in whiskey, that whiskey was for the washing of bodies and the word of wisdom and the doctrine and covenants. Things are different today, but the symbolism is the same. And sometimes I wonder when we don't have the symbol in front of us, if what it symbolizes is harder to see. There is a sense in which when the symbolism is changed, then the meaning can be lost, for sure. There's also our own post-enlightenment mindset, right? We don't have what C.S. Lewis calls the discarded image. That's the medieval mindset, the faith of the medieval mind, right? And that's a great book for anyone interested in what that looks like, what that mindset looks like, the discarded image by C.S. Lewis. Going along still with this concept, some of the symbolism that's involved with this, I had some thoughts. I was thinking about the exile itself and realizing that historically, it's not actually very unique at all. Right. What's unique about it is that we have a people and an identity that survived it. Ben, I was thinking the same thing, right? I was thinking <laughs> we could be reading a text that tells us this same story about every other yeah. people that was conquered and taken away yep. from their homeland into exile, but we're not. This is the one that's meaningful to us. Yeah, the norm in history is that a people is conquered, their culture's destroyed. If they're not all killed, they're taken into captivity, and their identity is completely lost to history. We know, if anything, about them, maybe from some archaeological or art, you know, just really obscure documents or something. So, this exile is in many ways the story of thousands of different cultures throughout history who were completely yeah. wiped out by other cultures. Yeah, not only that, Ben, but also it's not unique even in the Bible. It's actually compared, this exile is compared to the exile in Egypt. And in a sense, we get again with that, that there's nothing going on in the Bible but Exodus. <laughs> We've said this yeah. before. <laughs> what is unique about this is that the identity of these people survives within the text that we have handed down to us as a sacred text. But we know almost nothing about, again, those other peoples. The identity of the Jews survives, so we know much more. And they have become, in a way, representative of all of those who have been destroyed and lost and forgotten peoples. You know, Ben, the other thing that we don't know that we've been talking about, you know, we've been hinting at is if this identity that we get outlined in, in Deuteronomy, right? post-exile, and in these prophets, and in their, you know, complaining about the worshiping of foreign gods and idols and whatnot. 
as opposed to Yahweh. Remember, every time you read the Lord in small caps, you're reading the Tetragrammaton, right? This is Mm -hmm. YHWH being read as pious Jews do Adonai, which translates Lord. Even my Hebrew teacher, an atheist, taught me when I received the Tetragrammaton to read Adonai. Yeah. I actually use this name Yahweh quite flippantly on this podcast, right? It's not part of my tradition, so to speak, to reverence it. Sometimes I feel like maybe I should, you know? But I just really want to point out a reminder, right? That every time we read about this Lord in small caps, we're reading about Yahweh, who's this warrior God. And we're seeing a transformation in the understanding of the people through the prophets telling us that what they have to say to Israel is really a message to all the world. There's this cosmopolitan mm-hmm. message, yeah. And that's exactly where I was going with this. You know, the idea is that if God can restore these people, Israel, in this literal sense that we see in the text, then will he not also restore other peoples in some way? You know, it reminds me of a discussion that we had some time ago. And I don't remember what podcast it was, but we were talking about the symbolism of temple work, or it came up. We do from time to time anyway. When we name people, in the temple, which is part of every ordinance that we do for the dead. Names are extremely important in the temple. They signify this, this identity, this individual identity. When we name them, we symbolically resurrect them. They live again, even if it's only symbolically and temporarily. This is an individual rehumanization and an acknowledgement that is appropriate. It's an appropriate response to something that is Historically speaking, like a nameless genocidal horror that we see again in all these different times of history where peoples were conquered and and destroyed. And yet we have this thing where we're going to go back and individually discover these people and, and symbolically temporarily bring them back to life by naming them and and resurrecting them. And I think that's one of the powerful things about the Latter day Saint concept of work for the dead. I love that, Ben. It, it reminds me, you know, when you, when you say naming them, it makes me think of calling out, right? This is mm-hmm. a calling out. And so there's a sense in which they're singled out. They're brought up, right? They're mentioned. This is not going to be another nameless, faceless people that goes into exile, right? This is a particular people, my people. I am your God. You are my people. And then by the way, I'm not just your God, right? There's more yeah. to this story. Right. The first half of the book of Jeremiah, around 25 or 26 chapters, is there's a lot of poetry and it's largely poetic and it's largely prophecy. And then when we get into the second half, there's a lot more prose going on. And this is the fulfillment of the prophecy, like it's the actual playing out of the thing. One commentator called the second part of Jeremiah, the annulment of hope. Right. This is the descent into the abyss of the exile. But we do see at the end of the reading that we're covering today, Jeremiah 29, that this is a message of hope. It's a letter that Jeremiah writes to the exiles. And it's basically this message of hope. Now that's funny. That reminds me of a movie I watched, Dune. I was watching Dune mm-hmm. again. And if you've seen the movie, when the foreign peoples come, whoever they are, I should know this to make House Atreides in charge of Dune. The, I guess, king, the prince, the king, he tells his military advisor standing next to him to smile. And he looks like this tough, you know, not smiling military guy. And he says, I am smiling. 
<laughs> yeah. This is Jeremiah, right? This is Jeremiah's letter yeah. of hope. This is Jeremiah smiling. Remember that we get Second Isaiah after this too, right? So yep. if we if That's we right. read Second Isaiah as following Jeremiah, then that hope becomes less like Jeremiah and more like actual hope, right? <laughs> you yeah. start to see the light at the end of the tunnel. As I was reading through Jeremiah, you mentioned this, Christopher, I kept feeling like I was reading the same chapter over and over again. Like it's different words, but it's all the same thing, right? And and so it's like the people have sinned, they oppress the vulnerable, they worship other gods, they're going to be destroyed and taken captive. If they repent, they may be able to prevent the worst of it. Isn't that like our Latter-day Saint experience of going to church and hearing the same thing over and over every Sunday? Maybe <laughs> we need be. to listen, right? I don't know. Is it is it all the new people or is it that we're not listening? It's probably the new people, right? <laughs> yeah. Or, you know, we hear something like, oh, I sure hope brother so-and-so is listening to this. He really yes, to this. <laughs> yes, exactly. I'm sure there's a function to this, right? I mean, beyond the fact that we are looking at a highly edited version of the book of Jeremiah, right? There's there's lots of redaction and compilation that has been done in this book, like lots of other parts of the Bible that we've read so far. And so we might even be getting multiple versions of similar prophecies or accounts. And again, the people that are compiling it don't want to throw away any of them. They want to get rid of any of them. They put them all together in the same book. So we're going to get multiple versions and repeats of these same things. Yeah. Even if it's the same story told over and over, there's nuance, right? And it's, mm-hmm. and it's actually worth reading. And, and of course, you can't just assume that every other chapter is going to be. I remember being about halfway through and thinking, okay, I don't need to read the rest of this. I already know yeah. what this says. <laughs> no, that is true. You can fall into that trap. And, and I, I did kind of force myself, no, I've got to read every single yeah. one of these, not just assume. <laughs> and there are little things, you know, in these chapters, of course. there are these little nuances, the way that they explain things or some metaphor they use that, that you get these little jewels along the way. But you make an interesting point, Ben, because it could be that this text has this repetition because like Psalms, where you really feel like you're reading the same Psalm, maybe you are. Maybe mm-hmm. there are different versions that are compiled into one book, and that seems to be the case with Psalms. And could be the case here. This is part of a commentary, but there wasn't an author attributed on this. So this is just out of some Oxford commentary. It said this, the language of sin and judgment might serve as a survival mechanism to make the trauma of war manageable. It assures survivors that their suffering is not arbitrary, that God is not capricious, and that they can alter their future. In other words, as Didion put it, Joan Didion, we tell ourselves stories in order to live. Yeah. Let's talk a little bit more about Jeremiah, the experience of reading Jeremiah before we go into the details. Again, this very repetitive experience. I can't help but compare him to Isaiah, and and I mean Isaiah, son of Amos of Jerusalem, and maybe even, I don't know that it makes sense as much to compare him to second Isaiah, but thinking of first Isaiah, one thing I noticed is Jeremiah seems to say more often, he seems to go, I'm I'm having this meta conversation about reading Jeremiah. Jeremiah himself seems to be having a meta conversation all the time too, as as I read him. It's not just like with Isaiah, he tells you this is going to happen. And Jeremiah seems to tell you something like, I'm telling you this is going to happen. Not, not I'm telling you, thus saith the Lord. There's a lot of that, right? We get yeah, a lot more yeah. of that with Jeremiah than we do with Isaiah. And he's also calling out false prophets. We don't see these false prophets around 
first Isaiah that I recall. We don't see him engaging with them or talking about them. It sort of gave me this feeling of, thou dost protest too much, Jeremiah. Mm. How do we know you're a prophet? You're calling all the other prophets false prophets, and you're telling us everything you say, thus saith the Lord. How does this work? Ben, I mentioned this in pre-show discussion. You had a good reply for that. Well, in hindsight, we can look and say the way that Jeremiah said it was going to go is the way that it went, which is what Jeremiah says. He says, okay, well, we'll see who's the true prophet, whoever right. words actually come to pass. And, and that's kind of how he responds to some of these others. There's a, there's an exchange with a quote unquote prophet named Hananiah, right? Where Hananiah is talking. He prophesies even in the name of the Lord and says, in two years time, the whole Babylonian thing will blow over and we're going to get all of our temple stuff back and everything will be back to normal. And, and Jeremiah's like, man, I really hope that happens. That's not the way it's going to go. But, you know, if, if, if it does, you know, we'll, we'll see in a couple of years who's right. Right. And then Hananiah dies. Right. And so like <laughs> he's calling Hananiah out on, on the wishy hopey yeah. prophecy. Right. So, yeah. you know, it's interesting because Nibley wrote a book, right? Time vindicates the prophet. So you, you can say that, right? This does play out that way, but we can also see Jeremiah, as I, as I said of Isaiah, as someone who's reading the writing on the wall. And without bringing into question his feeling called from God, he feels called from God and, and he's surely sincere, right? And, and if God is speaking to him and saying, say something, you got to say something, right? And these other guys are saying things too, but they're saying, nah, don't worry. This isn't, this is going to blow over. Like you said, Ben, Jeremiah, we can say is just better at reading the writing on the wall. I mean, this is happening. Right. This mm-hmm. is, he's, he's watching it happen. This isn't something that he's saying is going to happen thousands of years from now. Now, of course, we can read it that way later on. As we wait for time to vindicate the prophets, sometimes we have to wait a long time, don't we? And we wait and we don't see the things happen. And we still think, well, this has been prophesied. So this has to happen. And so then you think, like okay, the this end is of going Isaiah. To happen. Right. It's going to happen at the end of the world. But we already talked about the end of Isaiah and the end of the Bible and Revelation about the new heavens and the new earth and how Jesus taught us that we find this within us and that the verb that's given, you know, as in I shall make a new world, something like that. It's in the future in the King James and in many other translations too. But going to the Hebrew, we found out this is something that God is doing. He's making a new heavens and a new earth. It's already always happening. And it's happening within us. It's happening in the community of Christ and it's happening in the hearts of the individuals who are called out in that, in that temple experience you mentioned, right? Each one individually. It's funny, we talk about doing work for names, such as the focus on names, right? That we talk about mm-hmm. doing work for names. That's always bothered me. I, <laughs> I think of doing work for individuals, right? The, the people behind yeah. the names. But yeah. I get, you know, especially with your exposition, like why the name is so important. The name is all we have that represents that unique individual, right? Yeah. And yet the name is called out only to then receive a new name. And I'm reminded of a beautiful quote from C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis writes, Imagine yourself as a living house. God comes in to rebuild that house. At first, perhaps you can understand what he's doing. He's getting the drains right and stopping the leaks in the roof and so on. You knew that those jobs needed doing, and so you're not surprised. But presently, he starts knocking the house about in a way that hurts abominably and does not seem to make any sense. What on earth is he up to? The explanation is that he is building quite a different house from the one you thought of, throwing out a new wing there, putting an extra floor there, running up towers, making courtyards. You thought you were being made into a decent little cottage, but he is building a palace. 
He intends to come and live in it himself. That's the temple that is the body of Christ. Your body is a temple, plural you. That's where God lives. He lives in the hearts of the community of believers. A lot of things to comment on in particular verses in the book of Jeremiah. But one of the first things that came up as I was reading through it was something we already mentioned, which was the call of Jeremiah to be a prophet. And then in that same chapter, we get this interesting sign. Now, Jeremiah has these things that the Lord tells him to do. And, and it's almost like he's, he's going to go have a symbolic experience and then the Lord's going to explain it to him. So it's like a lived out parable. Okay. And, and sometimes there are things to do or things to look at or, or observe here in, in the first chapter of Jeremiah, starting in verse 11, it says, the word of the Lord came to me saying, Jeremiah, what do you see? And I said, I see a branch of an almond tree. Then the Lord said to me, you have seen well, for I am watching over my word to perform it. Okay. The translation of this. You read this in the translation, you're like, what is he talking about? What does a branch of an almond tree have to do with watching over my word to perform it? I don't really get the connection here. Okay. Well, when you go to the Hebrew, it turns out that the Hebrew word for almond tree is shakad, and the Hebrew word for watching over is shokad. Okay. And so there's just a subtle vowel difference between these two words. And the Lord is using the play on words to get Jeremiah to remember something, right? So that whenever he sees an almond tree, he thinks the Lord is watching over that his word is be fulfilled. Only works in Hebrew, right? Like you can't translate this and expect people to see an almond tree and necessarily think the same thing. Now, you could see an almond tree. And sort of pull out, you know, a similar experience from it, right? But this is a linguistic peculiarity in Hebrew that you don't get unless you go in and see what the original Hebrew word is and see there's a play on words there. And this is not the only time this happens. This happens a ton with Jeremiah, other prophets as well. There's these play on words that help them recognize God is working and is present all around them. And this is where we get the the idea of lost in translation, right? These things mm-hmm. are lost in translation. We don't see these plays of words. They seldom work. Sometimes I like to share the one example that I know of that works. I do it all the time. It's fun, right? You get this idea of God created human. Adam means human. It's not somebody's name. It means human. Mm-hmm. So God creates human out of humus, not homos. That's chickpeas, right? This is living soil. And it's not <laughs> dirt, right? It's not dirt and it's not dust. I don't like the translation dust. That soil that you you can grow things in because it's very rich. Living soil. Yeah. So God created human from humus. You can see the play on words. Adam min ha adama. You can hear Adam and Adama. Ha adama is the soil. Adam is the human. So that's one example of where, where it does work, but it usually doesn't work. So we get Just a lot of this is lost. Yeah. <laughs> and it's interesting to note that Jeremiah... You you mentioned the prose and the poetry of Jeremiah. In Isaiah, we said that Isaiah is going to use poetry when he gives the word of the Lord. Maybe this is an explanation for why Jeremiah has to say, thus saith the Lord, because he's not using poetry oftentimes when he's giving the word of the Lord. But his language is still elevated, right? There is, of course, this is God speaking. The language is still elevated. Isaiah takes it maybe farther, right? It elevates it more by going into in verse and Jeremiah does have verse, but he often speaks for the Lord in prose. 
Over in chapter 2, part of verse 2 says, Thus says the Lord, I remember the devotion of your youth, your love as a bride, how you followed me in the wilderness in a land not sown. I love this language of Jeremiah. Yeah. That and, you know, he'll turn that around and tell you you're whoring after foreign gods and just there's this sort of this this adultery language, right? This you're betraying your your husband, right? Yeah, this covenant that we had. Hey, we had this really good thing going. What are you what are you doing? Yeah. You're betraying this. So yeah, this is a, an allusion to people coming out of Egypt and traveling in the wilderness, right? And and they were following him, right? So God was in the tabernacle that was leading them, that went before everyone and the the people followed after that. So that's sort of the the imagery that's evoked there. I love mentioning again the image of we see them carrying around God, but what's really going on is he's carrying them around. That's kind of, it reminds yeah. <laughs> me of that that poem, Footprints in the Sand, right? Right. Similar idea. Over in verse 35, we get this statement from the Lord. He says, Now I am bringing you to judgment for saying, I have not sinned. So what the Lord is asking the people to do here is confess their sin. He wants them to speak their trauma because the healing of that, the healing of this trauma, the healing of the sin begins with speaking the truth. You have to start with the truth in order to come out of that. It's like the Cain and Abel story when God comes to Cain and says, hey, Cain, what have you been doing? What's going on? Where's Abel? And Cain doesn't voice that. And so that creates the whole issue where Cain won't speak his trauma, won't confess, right? Yeah, and what God's really up to there is it's not so much that he, he already knows what's going on, right? It's mm-hmm. not like, okay, tell me what, what's going on. It's more like, what's going on with you? Like when your mother comes and says, what's going on with you? And yeah. you get to voice, you know, you get to express your pain, your sin, whatever it is you're dealing with, right? And there's the healing begins in the speaking of it. Yes. And this is why, you know, we see intergenerationally, we see child sexual abuse, right? And no one talks about it. And this thing that no one talks about is perpetuated in part by that silence. Kept in the dark. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And so once it comes out of the closet, once it's mentioned, once it's spoken, then the healing begins, which is not to say, I mean, it's still a long journey, right? But sure. Has to start with truth. Yeah. At least we can say it's not going to continue on down through the generations in the same way. Yeah. Yeah. It's tough. It's hard. So there's many times here in the book of Jeremiah where the Lord invites the people to confess because that is the first step is, is stating that truth. Yeah. Over in chapter three and, and multiple times throughout Jeremiah, but this is just the one time that I'll mention. There is an allusion here in verse six. He says, have you seen what she did? That faithless one Israel. How she went up on every high hill and under every green tree and played the whore there. This is using multiple references here. You talked about that motif of adultery within the symbolism of the bride. But here we have the high hills and the green trees. Okay. These are the high places of worship and the Asherim that we talked about, you know, many podcasts ago when in, in Kings. When the Deuteronomists come out and say, you know, this stuff all has to stop. Josiah gets rid of the high places and the, and the, the poles of worship, right? Which is the Asherim. These are the trees that they, they worship the, the queen of heaven at, right? And so this is again, just another reference to place this back within its 
context, a scriptural historical context, this is what's going on with the people at the time. These are the things that the Deuteronomists are calling out. This places Jeremiah within at least partially the Deuteronomist tradition with the way that he views these practices. Yeah, we can again see him possibly as the author of Deuteronomy. I don't think so, but it's possible. You can see him as working in tandem with the author of Deuteronomy. He's prophesying again, calling people to repent, to change their ways, to do it differently. And now how do you do it? Well, I happen to have the manual right here from my friendly Deuteronomist friend, right? Yeah, yeah. Look at this. We found it in the temple. It says everything. <laughs> well, yeah, and they say they found it at that time. You know, they uh-huh. come back to Jerusalem and they thank goodness we found this manual for how to do Judaism correctly so we don't go in exile again. And another way of looking at it is they actually wrote it at that time to justify mm-hmm. King Josiah's reforms. Sure. And we can see, you know, you and I mentioned, Ben, in a previous podcast, The idea that when you say there's no high places, there is a high place, right? They want to centralize worship under their eye. These are the priests, and the priests want to control the whole thing. And so they don't want you building an altar here and there and everywhere like Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and even Lehi, right? What does Lehi Mm -hmm. do? He leaves around this time. We could read this if there's a Lehi leaving Jerusalem at this time. We can read it as he's leaving because of this, right? And what is the first thing he does when he leaves? He builds an altar, right? Somewhere yeah, it goes else. out three days and builds an altar. Just yeah. like we saw previously in our earlier in, in the, well, here in the Old Testament, right? In the Hebrew Bible. Yeah. You know, after we had that discussion on Deuteronomy and then how Lehi and Nephi fit into the whole thing, I, after that, discovered that there's actually a lot of scholars or otherwise within the Latter Saint tradition that have written about this. And so this is the something oh, that is actually discussed in Book of Mormon scholarship, so to speak, uh, about this concept of where does Lehi fit theologically? Like what, what yeah. are his, what are his ideas and, and, and Nephi? And there's one paper that talks about how, oh, actually Laman and Lamuel, these are Deuteronomists. Like they are hardcore Deuteronomists and Lehi and Nephi are a little bit more of, of the old type of views. And so it, it's just very interesting to place them within this context because in the Book of Mormon, Nephi mentions that Jeremiah was contemporary with them and, and that they put him in jail. And so it, it's kind of like they knew who he was. Don't know if they knew him personally, right? But, but yeah. they knew who he was is the idea. You know, Ben, that brings up for me again, Nephi and his Asherah, which we, in this context, in the conversation we're having now, and also thinking back to what you said a few minutes ago about how that play of words, right? Where Jeremiah is told, look at this and you'll understand that. And for us who don't oh, see the play yeah. of words, how does this mean that? And it's had the same thing happens with Nephi and his Asherah. So I was going to say, on the one hand, we don't see Lehi taking Asherah into the new world, you know, into the promised land with him. I don't see that. I don't know if I'm missing it. We'll, we'll look for that when we go through the Book of Mormon. But we do see that Nephi has a vision where he's trying to understand something. What is he asking, Ben? Well, he says, what is the meaning of these things? You know, like he sees what's the meaning of the vision of the tree of life. So he has the vision of the tree of life and he asks, what does this mean? Right? He, he wants to understand for himself. By the way, kudos to Nephi for asking God, right? His brothers, they don't understand and they just, I don't know. I don't get it, man. And that's it, right? That's the end. I always tell my kids when they don't understand, I said, what are you going to do about it? If they tell me they're not good at something, then I hand them Angela Duckworth's book, Grit, and tell them to reread it. I already, <laughs> I already made them read it last time they said that, right? What are you going to do about it? And so he says, what does this mean? And he's shown an Asherah, right? He's shown a female entity, right? This divine feminine 
image. And yep. he says, oh, okay, now I get it. And we think, wait a minute, how does that explain what he asked? How did he make that connection? Yeah. And the yeah. answer is for him, Asherah has meaning that it doesn't yeah. have for us. And so we right. went into that in another episode and maybe we'll come to it again when we come to the Book of Mormon and go into it yeah. in more detail again. But we did go into it in detail. Do you remember when we did that, Ben? It would have been, I think, when we talked about the book of Deuteronomy. Okay. When we did our episode on Deuteronomy. I oh, and the Asherim, of course. Yeah. Yeah, on one of those episodes in which we talked about Asherim, if, if there was only one episode on Deuteronomy, then I would have to say, how did we do that, Ben? But okay. There are several references here in Jeremiah that, as I was reading through, really made me think of Enoch. Okay. And, and his experience. And the first was the call of Jeremiah. Another one here is in chapter 4, verse 28. This says, because of this, the earth shall mourn and the heavens above grow black. This is very similar wording to Enoch's vision where he sees the earth itself as an entity, like as a, as an intelligent conscious entity that's mourning, right? And then he sees the heavens veiled, covered in black. Shortly here, we're going to get the time where God is actually weeping and crying here in Jeremiah. And that's what Enoch observes in his vision. He sees God weeping. The God who weeps. Yeah. That's such a beautiful image, Ben, an image of a God who who weeps, a God who feels for us. And again, you know, not to diminish that at all, but the God who says, you guys are really screwing up. You know what I'm going to do? And this is first Isaiah, everlasting covenant. And then in second Isaiah, you guys are really screwing up. You know what I'm going to do? New covenant. Yeah. And so now we have a new and everlasting covenant. Yeah, and that's both. God's response to, <laughs> you guys are screwing up. I've got to be a better dad, Ben. When I compare myself to God and I think about how I handled things last night, boy, that's not the way I did it. <laughs> I guess we can stay on this, this concept of the weeping God, you know, the God who weeps, the symbolism of crying. So if I go to the end of chapter eight and beginning of chapter nine, the way that this is put into chapters in our Bible is possibly a little bit misleading. In the Hebrew Bible, chapter eight extends through verse one of chapter nine, and chapter nine starts with verse two. For King James readers, right, we think that there's a shift that's meaningful from one chapter to the next. And these chapters are really a lot more arbitrary than that. And actually, I can think of, I can draw a parallel with ancient scrolls. If you're reading Aristotle, right, you think, okay, I'm in Nicomachean Ethics, book one, now I'm in book two. What happened between book one and book two? Did the subject change? No, the scroll ran out and you get a new yeah. scroll. I don't know how the chapters work. They don't work exactly the same way, but I yeah. thought I'd mention that. So you yeah. have these different chapters, but what you can really look for to see where things really shift, and you'll notice pretty much every time we tell you that this is not where the chapter should end, you'll see a paragraph marker in your text. Sometimes yeah. these sections of text are called pericopes. So it looks like a backwards P with lines through it, and that's a paragraph marker. And this is helpful to look for because you're just reading columns and verses, and you don't notice unless you're paying attention. So pay attention for those paragraph markers. In other churches, Ben, they only cover one pericope a week. We're covering the entire book of Jeremiah in one week. <laughs> right. They go through one pericope a week, and they just take their time going through all this. Sometimes I wonder why we don't. I know they say, okay, we have to get through all the standard works. Okay, well, maybe we could get through it every eight years instead of every four years. <laughs> right. So I'm going to go to verse 21 of chapter 8 and read through verse 1 of chapter 9. For the hurt of my poor people... I am hurt, I mourn, and dismay has taken hold of me. This is the Lord speaking. Okay. Verse 22. Is there no balm in Gilead? 
Is there no physician there? Why then has the health of my poor people not been restored? Oh, that my head were a spring of water, and my eyes a fountain of tears, so that I might weep day and night for the slain of my poor people. Some months ago, I was asked to give a talk. I think the prompt was like my favorite verse about Jesus or something. And so I took the verse in the New Testament that just says, Jesus wept. And I talked about the concept of weeping, of crying, and and what it symbolizes in the scripture and then in our lives and and pulled in these scriptures about God weeping. I missed this one in Jeremiah. It would have been a good one to bring in, but I learned so many interesting and profound things. One of the things that I found was a quote by a scholar named Gary L. Eversall, and he says some things about the religious and social significance of tears. So I'm going to read some of this. He says, The liminal nature of tears enables them to serve as a symbolic means of mediation between persons, living or dead, between an individual and society, between the inner world and the outer world, and so forth. In this sense, tears play an important socio-political function in mediating and potentially transforming power relations between humans, divine and human beings, and the dead and the living. Eyes are like windows insofar as they provide visual access to both the interior and exterior of the human body. In sharp contrast, Tears cross the bodily boundary of inside and outside in one direction only. That's the threshold. Yeah. Tears flow out of the eyes, not into them. The unidirectional nature of the flow of tears informs the widespread belief that tears carry information about the interior world of an individual or at times of a group out to the broader world. Tears are believed to be signs of interior and otherwise invisible states, most commonly affective or spiritual states. Beautiful. You know, the, the origin of, you said the, the liminal, right? Yeah. The word liminal comes from the Latin limen, which means threshold. And so that mm-hmm. threshold is between the inner and the outer world of the individual. You know, we talk about subliminal, and I think of, I don't know if this happens to you, Ben, but sometimes you cross a threshold in your house, right? And you forget, like you walk to another room to get something. Mm. And when you cross that threshold, there's something about the threshold that just seems to cause you to forget. Does this happen to you? (laughs) You're in a different world now, yeah. (laughs) It happens to me all the time. That's a good point. I didn't think about it that way. And sometimes you go back to where you came from, and now you can remember and go back again. Yeah. I think about my wife, Ben, you know, Sunday afternoons typically mean a nap. And this is all true for a lot of people, right? But with my wife, it's because she has a headache. And she has a mm. headache because she's crying. And she's crying because that's the way that she experiences church. And so it's Sunday, we go to church, she experiences this dimension. She cries, she gets a headache, she needs a nap. Others of us take a nap on Sunday for other reasons. But this is an example Oh, interesting. And you can see it, right? She tears up and she's not saying anything. It's like in the scholar you read, there's something communicated. I know something about her inner state, just seeing her tear up sitting next to me in church. I know something's going on and I know I need to keep it quiet this afternoon, right? 
I think that's the idea behind this is that the Lord is saying, like, if my head were a fountain of water, you know, he's, he's saying, this pains me. I really am mourning with you in this, right? Like, I'm not a dispassionate, disconnected God. I'm with you. I'm in this with you. And so it, it, it can be a little odd to see something like that. I think in the context where he also talks about, yeah, I'm going to bring people and slaughter you and some are going to get killed and some carried away. And it seems so like, you know, hateful or even, you know, indifferent to the suffering of people. But then we get verses like this where we see, no, God is not indifferent to the suffering of humanity. He participates in it with us. Yeah, I'd like to attempt an explanation of that, you know, in line with the way we've been reading the Bible, Ben, which is, you know, again, we don't see prophets as receiving dictation from God. Here, take this down, write this down. I'm going to tell you what to say, right? This is the Orthodox Muslim view, right? This is not our view. Now, some may believe that without having actually thought about it, right? They don't realize they believe that. Maybe you Mm. believe that. But that's not the way our tradition works. We don't say, right, that the prophets are receiving dictation from God. So the receiving impressions, these are visions, experiences, manifestations of the divine, which they then have to put into words. And so we see it come into words, whether it's Jeremiah or Joseph Smith, in their own context, right? What are the words that they choose? What are the images that the words that they choose express? How are they feeling at the time they're expressing it? (laughs) Yeah. On the one hand, their experience of God is shown in that image. And on the other hand, it's an image of their own time and place, right? It's their own context. We can see God peeking through the cracks of what Jeremiah maybe thinks God is. And I don't know that he would think of God as weeping, but he gets that. Look, you can cherry pick verses. I remember someone standing on the corner and they make a video and it's on YouTube and they have a Bible and they're trying to pass it off as the Quran and they read you Mm. this verse, maybe one of these verses from Jeremiah where God's going to do these terrible things to people. And they say, what do you think of this to the passers-by? And the passers-by say, oh, that's terrible. What a terrible book. And it's, of course, everybody thinks it's the Quran. And it's mm. right here. And the, and the point is, no, this is right here in your Bible. But it's funny because the Quran actually works the same way. Usually the verses that people are reading that they say, look at this verse. This is terrible. They don't read the verse before and they don't read the verse after and they don't put it into context. And oftentimes the very next verse says, nevertheless, God is forgiving and merciful. And if you repent, everything will be fine, right? Right. (laughs) So so it's like, yeah, these bad things can happen to you if you don't live your life right, but that's not God. God is merciful, and he's going to try to, you know, if you turn to him in those bad things and you look for him, you're going to find him, and he's going to be there for you, right? There's going to be a way that you're going to connect with the divine in such a way that it's going to bring you comfort, it's going to bring you maybe even solutions, right? Right at least comfort. Maybe the bad things won't go away. I don't know that there's really good theology here in in the Deuteronomist who tell us that if we repent, bad things won't happen to us. I think even my youngest child knows better than that, right? I mean, (laughs) we've all experienced that you do all the right things and something still goes right. Now, of course, you can always still try to blame yourself. And there's nothing wrong with that as long as you're not beating up on yourself. Like the idea of taking full responsibility for whatever happens to you, even if it seems like it's force majeure, right? Like God made this happen. And yet I'm going to take full responsibility. If you take full ownership, 
then that places you in a powerful position. You can be a victim instead, and that's completely valid, but you could also choose, and it's just a choice, right? You could choose this powerful position of taking full responsibility. And by the way, you doing it doesn't rob anyone else of it. You and I, Ben, we could both take full responsibility for whatever goes wrong between us if that happens, God forbid, and we could end up like Chip and Dale. No, 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 I insist it's my responsibility. And you might say, no, 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 I insist it's my responsibility. But <laughs> me taking full responsibility doesn't actually take anything away from you. You can do the same thing. We can all do this. So we're not absolving anyone who harms us of responsibility. We're just also taking responsibility. We don't do it alone. We do it with God. He can handle it. And so can we. I can do all things through Christ, which strengtheneth me. Philippians 4.13, right? Yeah. I'm going to go to chapter 10, Christopher, to just an astounding verse. Okay, here's, here's the verse. Chapter 10, verse 14. Everyone is stupid and without knowledge. That's a great verse. <laughs> Everyone is stupid and without knowledge. What would Rob Bell say about this? I feel like if I were a better commentator like Rob Bell, I could say something really cool here. It's just, you know, you can see Jeremiah's exasperation here. You know, he's obviously going to come to a point where he's just like, everyone's stupid. and Not even, they're just all ignoramuses. They're not listening. By the way, Ben, that's one out of many verses that we should not take out of context. Going back sure. to the previous discussion, you can't just say, look, right here in the Bible, it says everyone is stupid. Everyone is stupid, right? <laughs> Therefore, that is, right? Yeah, obviously, there's context to that verse. <laughs> and I did. I took it out of context, tongue in cheek, right? Yeah, and this is what people do with the Bible, right? They take these verses out of context and you can make, that's why they say the Bible is a, a fiddle and you can make it play any tune you want. You can do this by cherry picking verses and by taking them out of context by proof texting, right? I'm going to find the verse that agrees with me and ignore all the rest. And so a more challenging, more difficult proposition that takes study, not just reading, not just reading some verses, but really digging into the text is to understand it as a whole, to realize again that, yes, you can make allegorical interpretations, but they can't contradict the plain meaning of the text, and that the plain meaning of the text includes the context in which it is placed, whether it be the context of the book or collection of writings that we call the book of Isaiah, or whether it be the ancient Near Eastern context in general for the entire Bible. So we have some homework to do. Okay, this verse is for you, Christopher, Jeremiah chapter 12, verse 1. You will be in the right, O Lord, when I lay charges against you. But let me put my case to you. Why does the way of the guilty prosper? Why do all who are treacherous thrive? Job. Mm-hmm, right? As I'm reading Jeremiah, like I'm seeing this amalgamation of like all these things that we've talked about in the Bible up to this. I'm seeing stuff that's referencing Torah. I'm seeing stuff that's referencing exile. I'm seeing stuff that's referencing the, the Deuteronomist history. I'm seeing stuff that's referencing Job. I'm seeing stuff that's referencing Psalms. There's all kinds of things in here pulling from all these other types of writings and traditions. And they're, I see them all kind of amalgamated, like I said, in, within this book of Jeremiah. You know, when we get to some of these other chapters, there's like, there's whole portions that are like a psalm. And then there's chapter 17 has a part in it that is almost at least a, a piece of it is, is like straight out of Psalm one, right? So anyway, it's interesting. And we're not even in the New Testament yet, Ben. <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah. Right. No, yeah. So we see, we see that all these texts are in conversation with each other. And this is, you know, as a philosopher, this is what we preach and teach, you know, is that 
Well, first of all, Alfred Northwood had said that everything that happens in philosophy after Plato is just footnotes to Plato, right? But whether that's, you know, literally true or not is in some sense is true. All these texts are in conversation with each other. If someone wrote after Plato, he has to have taken Plato into account. And so we get that and we get that the New Testament authors are going to comment on the Tanakh in the same way that the prophets that we're reading, Isaiah and Jeremiah, are commenting on the Torah. And we get that the, you know, later on, the Muslims are going to do the same thing and the, and the Quran is going to comment on the Torah, right? In a different way. Mm-hmm. And we're going to do the same, right? Joseph Smith is going to do it. We're going to do it in our own way, each of us individually. And we're told to do this, right? Nephi tells us to liken the scriptures to ourselves. And this is how we do it. And if we put Jeremiah and Isaiah into their context, we can say in some sense that none of this is relevant to me. Because what they're speaking to has already passed. And even the prophecies have already been fulfilled. And the ones that aren't, okay, maybe that takes us forward and we can carry those forward and look for them. Maybe we just missed it. Maybe we're missing the context. Maybe they didn't happen. Maybe it's not about us. Again, you're so vain, you probably think this song is about you, right? (laughs) There's that lifetime bias. But at the same time, it doesn't mean anything to us, right? To me, unless I make it mean something to me, and I'm the one who creates that meaning. And we do it as a community too, right? You and I can do it as friends in conversation. We can go to church and do it in in our community there. And, And at the same time, you know, this isn't to say that these aren't valid interpretations. They're very much valid because they're ours, right? They're very much ours. I remember teaching a class on Dante where my wife was in the class with Travis Patton. And we always read through a canto together out loud. And then we'd ask the students, the participants in the discussion, what did they get out of that canto from Dante? And sometimes they got stuff that we know Dante didn't intend. By the way, with Dante, sometimes you never know what he intended. And my wife's insights are as valid as the greatest Dante scholars. But whatever the case may be, her insights are valid for her. And she's got great insights. I remember going to see... Finding Nemo. I was in school and my whole life was school and papers and all that. And I went on a date with my wife and we saw Finding Nemo. And I'm just sitting there thinking, look at the pretty colors and how relaxing and how nice to be sitting next (laughs) to my wife in the dark here in this movie theater and not writing papers or reading philosophy. And then the movie ends and she's in tears again. Why is she in tears this time? I'm just like, what is going on? What happened? She says, that was a story about overcoming your fears. And I just think, really? (laughs) <laughs> I had no idea. I just it's just relaxed and watching the pretty colors and the little fishies. And, yeah. and meanwhile, she's getting that. And it is. It's a story about overcoming your fear. And it's a father-son story. I missed that entirely in reading the Odyssey. <laughs> and here I thought I was a good reader. It's a father-son story. So there's so much as these texts have to offer us. And if we keep coming back to them, they'll keep giving. And that's the mark of a classic, right? Whether it's these sacred texts in our tradition and others, whether it's great novels, Right, We can learn about our souls and the souls of the people around us that we, we don't see anywhere but in literature. We can look into the eyes. That's it, right? We talked about that. Yeah. They're the windows. That's yeah. it. And then, yet again, that is worth more than maybe people realize. Have you ever done this, Ben? I was participating in the Landmark Forum, and on one of the days, at some point, they asked us to line up you know, two lines with people facing each other with a complete stranger right in front of you, and I mean just a couple of feet away from you, and just to look into their eyes for, I don't know how long it was, but it seemed like an eternity. It was just a couple of minutes. It's so uncomfortable. We're not used to doing it. Hmm. Try this sometime. Do it with your lover. Do it with a friend. See if you can get a stranger to do it with you. It's pretty cool. 
Yeah, I've heard of that kind of thing before, and they'll interview the people afterwards and get their thoughts on on what it was. And, you know, it can be uncomfortable, but then, like, after a time, you just, like, all you did was stare in their eyes and you come away from it. Like, I feel like I kind of know that person now, you know, like. There's a deep connection that happens. And, you know, I talked about trying it with your lover. It's a little more comfortable all the way through a stranger, no matter what. And I don't mean this in a, in a sexual way, but it's erotic, right? This is, this is access to, to the erotic nature, which is an aliveness, right? And it's a shared reality that we can all experience and we can all live together. And it's a way of living. And rather than having that wall between us, right? If we can, access that which you don't have to look into somebody's eyes but this is a sure way to do it right if we can access that intimacy with the other again not sexual just human intimacy then we enter into this erotic or alive way of being this imaginal way of being that's a whole different way of being and we can see that and again i can relate i think i can relate that to god's tears right that's something of the inner coming out in the way right. that you described it, such that we have access to that inner world and that inner soul and that kingdom of God that is within us, Ben. Right. If you want to more Job, you can go to chapter 20, verses 14 through 18. Oh, good. I, I feel like this comes right out of Job, right? Like, I'm not going to read the whole thing, but he says, Cursed be the day on which I was born, the day mm-hmm. when my mother bore me. Let it not be blessed. It's yes. like, wait, am I reading Job or Jeremiah here? Yeah, it's a, <laughs> yeah. If it's not a direct quote, it's the same words, right? right? I mean, whether one is quoting the other or whether they're using the same words, it is the same words. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I love it. Job has not left the building, guys. And that's how this is. You know, I hope that this is happening for you the way it's happening for Ben and me. It's just Job is still with us. Isaiah is still with us. Jeremiah will remain with us. I once taught another class, like the Dante class. This was on Marcus Aurelius's meditations. And this was an early morning. Rather than having an hour two or three times a week, we had just a half an hour every morning, every weekday. And one of my students, one of the participants said, I feel like the emperor is with me all day. What a great way to start the day, right? And this is why it's a great way to start your day, to read from these sacred texts, right? Because they'll remain with you. You can have Jeremiah with you all day. You can have Jeremiah with you all your life if you make it your intention, right? Or if he just, like Job did me, if he just moves in. (laughs) He moves in and he won't move out, right? You can't evict him. Not that I want to. I love having Job with me. So a couple more things, just as we progress through some of the chapters here. There's a long discussion in chapter 27 between Jeremiah and some of these other people. Jeremiah basically makes a stump political speech here. And it doesn't look political on the face, but when you realize that in ancient times, like we've talked about before, politics and religion really aren't different. They're the same thing in the ancient world. Then you start seeing that Jeremiah's discussion – of how Israel should have a relationship with Babylon. It's much a discussion about religion as it is about politics. And all these other people that are saying, no, you know, we shouldn't serve Babylon, we should stay away. Now, are we talking false prophets or just the people? They're hecklers for sure. Yeah. Some of them would be considered false prophets. Others just, this is the way that they're viewing the politics and, and religion of the time. And one of the interesting things about this that came out to me was that you know, this is Jeremiah who is, you know, the canonized prophet of the Lord in our scripture. And he's saying things like, 
it is the right thing for the people to serve Babylon. That's what God wants. That's what you're supposed to do. And if you get anybody that says, don't serve Babylon, that person is rebelling against the Lord. And it's like, wait a second. This seems to be total opposite of our religious message all the time. You know, go out from Babylon, right? And don't have one foot in Babylon and one foot inside, all this sort of stuff, right? And then we get this statement by Jeremiah where he's in this time pre-exile. He's saying, oh, no, 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 we need to, you know, we need to do everything Babylon says. We need to affiliate ourselves politically with them. We need to serve them and all of this because if we don't, they're going to come in and wipe us out. Right. So on the one hand, what we could be getting here is this idea that God is having Babylon take us into exile. You can't argue mm-hmm. with God. You go into right. exile and you go willingly, right. right? On the other hand, as you pointed out, maybe if we would do this now, we don't have to go into exile. But either way, God is making all this happen. Yes. Which is kind of what Isaiah was saying previously when he's talking with Hezekiah and Hezekiah is worried And Isaiah says, no, 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 don't be worried. The Lord will protect us. You don't need to make an alliance. The Lord will protect us. And so then they rely on the Lord. But here, Jeremiah is almost in some ways saying the opposite. Like, you have to make an alliance. You have to serve Babylon. Otherwise, you will be destroyed. And this is what the Lord wants. Just like you said, you know, you could turn it and say, well, it's not necessarily so much to avoid destruction as it is to do what the Lord wants. And I am the prophet saying this is what the Lord wants. It's just an interesting twist to this that the way that he's putting it and the rhetoric he's using, you wouldn't necessarily expect. Yeah. The last thing I want to mention is just, I kind of already said this about chapter 29, that basically at the end of 28, historically speaking, the people have gone into exile. And then 29 is this letter that Jeremiah writes to the people in exile And he's telling them that there's hope, that things will work out eventually. But he's also telling them, you're going to be there for a while. He says, make permanent homes, you know, grow food. You're going to be there for 70 years, he says. And so then you will come back. Which has to be symbolic, obviously, right? I mean, you can say, okay, he's a Mm -hmm. prophet. He knows. I think he's saying, you're going to be a while. Yeah. Just like we don't know, even if we have a prophet, no one has been told when will be the end, right? By the way, again, we covered this last time, right? With the new heavens and the new earth, the end is always near. The end is near, yeah. yeah. My end is coming. <laughs> your end is coming, right? And the world ends all the time. That happens too. We see a, a, a new world emerge from the ashes of an old one. And this is something understood by the ancients. And we talked about last time about how all these signs that we think of as the signs of the times, they're always present. It, it takes either not reading history, I think, or just... I don't know, choosing to focus on this particular sign and, and not and ignoring all the other ones that have happened, right? I mean, this happens all the time. These signs occur and they reoccur and the world ends and it begins again. And this is what the whole Bible is about even, right? We get yeah. the creation and recreate, you know, recreation. We get order from chaos. We get disorder back to chaos, non-order, a reordering. And here, remember that Isaiah, even though we've already covered him, is going to come after Jeremiah, second Isaiah, and he's going to give us an even more hopeful message. And he's going to speak a lot. Yes, comfort my people. He speaks of a remnant returning and a restoration. And both prophets get, yeah, things are going to get bad, but fear not. Fear not. Yeah. So we we jumped out of chronology here a little bit, or kind of a lot of it. Like the previous books we talked about, Ezra and Nehemiah, chronologically happened after this. I know that for me, and I've mentioned this before, 
I didn't have a very solid grasp on the chronology of the books of the Old Testament. Same here. And seeing here that, oh, they're not placed chronologically. You know, much of my scriptural experience, at least understanding chronology, is focused on the Book of Mormon, which is, except for Ether, placed in chronological order. Ben, I read that one first. I don't know about you. Yeah. I like to read my Book of Mormon in chronological yeah. order. <laughs> okay. My expectation is somewhat that the Old Testament is this way. And there is some chronology to it, but then just the way that it's compiled in different traditions, we get these books that are just out of chronological order, and that makes it in some ways out of context, so it can be difficult to realize, oh, Ezra Nehemiah comes after this. So a lot of the things that we talked about in Ezra Nehemiah might be very relevant to an understanding of this world that we're entering into with Jeremiah and Lamentations and Ezekiel and Daniel that we're going to be getting to as well. And so it might be helpful to go back and look over Ezra Nehemiah, someone's notes from him, or, or listen to that podcast that we did. I did that one with Kyle, I think so. Just a helpful contextualization. Well, isn't it with Kyle that you talked about understanding where the Pharisees are coming from? Because that's been on my mind going through this, right? We might have talked a little bit about that, but uh, I think that was with Tom. Okay, with Tom. Yeah. So that was, which episode was that? Now I don't remember. It was one of the ones on Kings and it was the last episode of Second Kings because we were going to be going into exile, right? The idea was that they want to prevent this exile from happening again. And so we have to adhere to all of these rules because the Deuteronomists say that the reason it happened is because you didn't obey all these rules. And so the Pharisees come in and say, well, we can't have this happen again. This was totally catastrophic. And so we have to obey all of these rules exactly. So what's interesting is that in Jeremiah, we get this commentary on this fact. You know, in chapter 3, verse 11, it says, Then the Lord said to me, Faithless Israel has shown herself less guilty than false Judah. And the idea here is that you can go through all the ritual acts and everything that are spelled out within the law, within the instruction, but your heart's not in it. You're not really trying to have a relationship with God. And so that is sinful. That is the problem. And it'd be better if you just were honest with yourself and and with God about how you really feel, which is that you don't really have any faith, but that this blatant hypocrisy is the problem. Yeah, you know, I can't help but think of Al-Ghazali and the Islamic tradition. In the Islamic tradition, Muhammad is the seal of the prophets, as the Quran reads, which is interpreted as he's the last prophet. There are no more prophets after him. But there will be renewers, the Islamic tradition tells us, renewers of religion. We're looking at some religious reformers here in the Bible, And the message, I think, is similar. The message of Al-Ghazali is, I don't want you to blindly follow tradition. I want you to, yes, follow the tradition, right? Perform the sacrifices, as it were. That's not what's happening in Islam. But whatever the tradition says, yes, follow the tradition, but don't blindly follow it. Think about the meaning. Think about what it means to do these things and do them with what in Islam is called Nia, which is intention, right? With the, with the right intention, with your heart in the right place. That's what Isaiah was telling us. God wants our hearts. He doesn't want dead animals. And Jeremiah is telling us the same thing. Yeah. There's a conference talk some years ago where somebody talked about this metaphor of, of dancing and music. And, and the idea was, you know, I can teach you all the moves of the dance, but I can't make you hear the music, mm. right? So you can get out there and you can do all the moves of the dance. But if you're not really hearing the music, then in a sense, you're not really dancing because that inner thing that is coming out within the dance that gives life to the dance, if it's not there, 
then the dance is dead, right? It's just a dead animal, like you said. Yeah. What Al-Ghazali is doing, his project, and this is around, he died in 1111, right? So this is in the Middle Ages. What he wants to do is to introduce the mainstream to Sufism. And this is a little bit controversial. Sufism is controversial in Islam. This is the mystical form of Islam. Some in Islamic tradition believe that it's extraneous to Islam. Others would admit that it predates Islam, but it's part of this perennial religion. But at any rate, what Al-Ghazali wants to do is to bring the inner experience to what is only an empty shell, right? If you're just following all the rules, they help you be in a place where you can then have an experience of God, right? To be purified morally, to experience God. But if you're only doing the things and you're not doing them with the right intention, then you're not actually purifying yourself. And if you're not doing all of this for the sake of God, not for the sake of crossing off a list, but for the sake of God, to get close to God, then you're missing the inner experience, the inner kernel that that shell is meant to protect. And so this is the conversation again, where I began my podcasting career, let's say, with the Latter-day Peace Studies contemplation, talking about the esoteric and the exoteric. We need both, right? You need the outer shell, but the point of the outer shell is to protect the inner kernel. And without the inner kernel, it's just an empty shell. And if all you're doing is the checklist gospel and you're not experiencing God, and by the way, I've heard from people who say, I'm doing all the things and it's not working, right? They're not getting what they expect. Now, some of them are expecting that things won't go wrong. They've read too much into the Deuteronomist, right? Expectations is the issue. Yeah, they they (laughs) believed the bad theology, as I like to call it, that if you don't do anything wrong, then nothing bad will happen to you. I don't think that's true. I think that's what these writers understood or misunderstood about reality. But that's not how it works. So how does it work? I think this is the idea behind what we have in our tradition of, quote unquote, partaking of the sacrament unworthily. Not so much that like people should worry about what sins or whatever they have before they partake of the sacrament, but it's about the preparation and the heart that goes into it beforehand. And so that if you're just doing this, you know, just this performance of this ordinance without the intention, like you said, that goes into it, then it actually can do more harm than good because now you are doing something that has no meaning to it. And at some point you're going to say, this is stupid. And yet you think you've done it. Yeah. You think you've done it. You think it counts and you think, well, yeah, this is stupid, right? Because it doesn't do anything. Well, yeah, that's your fault. It is stupid. It doesn't do anything because there's no spirit in it, no intention in it. And so the invitation is that it's very important for us to approach those things with the right heart and the right mind. And so all of that is geared towards preparing us for that moment. You know, we talked about ritual uncleanliness a few times recently and that it's different from sin and that sin doesn't necessarily prevent us from partaking of an ordinance, how could it, right? Because like the whole purpose of an ordinance is to help us repent of that sin, right? But there are things that can detract from our attention and our preparedness. And so a lot of times there's these things that you go through, the processes or whatever that you might do that prepare you, that cleanse you, so to speak, in a ritual sense, not in a in a sin sense, to then participate in that so that then you have that experience. Well, Ben, I was thinking at the end of this episode, we would go into more, you know, how this applies to me. And yet I feel like we've done that. You know, hopefully we've done that, right? We've, we've shown you how, yeah, there's this original context. Yeah, there's how we've read it. 
there's a reason we did that. And that's where it's at for us, right? Because we're not being invaded by Assyria, but something is happening. These writings speak to us in our time because we find ourselves in crises, personal crises. We think, too, that there are these larger crises. I'm not sure. I think there's a reality to Assyria invading and carrying you away captive, right, or Babylon. I don't know that that this is the most important election of our lifetime works the same way, right? Mm. (laughs) But sometimes it feels like that, right? I can imagine somebody maybe living in a country that is under threat of invasion now, say like Ukraine, right, might experience something a little more like this. Yeah, it's a little more visceral then, right? Sure. And so that's another thing, too, to realize that we have Latter-day Saints all over the world. You know, you and I are in America, and we're, we're speaking out of and into that context, just like Isaiah and Jeremiah are speaking out of and into their own context. And yet there are saints all over the world, and we know from stats that we have listeners all over the world. And I remember how different my experience of being a Latter-day Saint was in Venezuela, where I became a Latter-day Saint, from what it is here in the United States. Sometimes I think about going to a Hispanic ward just so I can have that experience. I learned the gospel in Spanish. I've served as an interpreter in state conferences. And when I hear those words in English and I myself translate them into Spanish, which again is interpreting, right, if you're doing it orally, but there's a translation that happens in my head, then the gospel is somehow truer, right? (laughs) Well, it's fresh. It's kind of a fresh thing, cultural, you know, it's just like this new cultural experience. It's a different kind of seasoning or spice to it, right? (laughs) Right, right. Right, right, yeah. And so the church honors that in some sense. It's like in the Islamic tradition where the Muslims, you know, expanded their empire and they brought Islam to those who would accept it. We we get these stories about people had to convert or die, and maybe that happened with some people, but for the most part, Muslims were willing to allow people to practice their religion. They asked for a poll tax, which meant you don't have to fight will fight. They become a protected people, just like in the Book of Mormon story of the people who decided they wouldn't fight anymore. And so now the other people fought for them. Surely Mm -hmm. they had to support those people. I don't remember whether the text tells us so, but there's some sense in which if you're not fighting, you're going to be supporting those who are doing the fighting for you in some way, right? Did you remember, Ben, does the text tell us anything about that? Well, what happens is the anti-Nephi-Lehi's, they offer to give to support the Nephites. Right. Yeah. So there it is. Well, Ben, I look forward to covering the rest of Jeremiah with you next week. Yeah, we're going to do the rest of Jeremiah and then Lamentations, which is a a short thing. It's possible Jeremiah was the author of Lamentations. Maybe not, but we'll go into that. Cool. Well, we'll see you next week, Ben. And thank you to you, Ben, for I don't think I could do this without you, Ben. <laughs> I tried to do it without you. It just didn't really. <laughs> <laughs> and thanks to Tom and Kyle for stepping in then. And thank you for yeah. editing. And thanks to Bethany for all she does on social media so that I don't have to. I am lurking on social media. If you have something to say to me or to Ben, reach out to us, you know, on social media, whether it be by, we've got to pay attention to those YouTube comments. What's nice about YouTube is you can comment on each episode. Whereas on the podcast app, you can only comment on the podcast as a whole. But please feel free to do that. Let us know what you think. Reach out to us. I've been receiving messages, private messages via Facebook Messenger. I actually had the pleasure of speaking with one of the listeners is the widow of Bill Hamblin. You and I both knew Bill Hamblin as someone connected with farms and with Interpreter Foundation. You even had him as a substitute for one of your professors at BYU, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And, and others, you know, I actually have been invited to speak at a homeschool conference because I mentioned homeschooling my kids and I do that. I already do that. There are a couple of organizations that asked me to do that. So now I'll be doing that for, I think, LDS HE, it's called home educators, probably LDS home educators. 
Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I remember that message. Yeah, so reach out to us and let us know what you think. If you have any ideas or questions or comments or thoughts or feelings, we'd love to hear from you. And then there's our Come Follow Me study group that meets on Zoom Sunday mornings at 8 a.m. to 9 a.m. Pacific. That's my time. There'll be a link posted on Zoom every Sunday morning, if not before Sunday morning. It's posted Sunday morning just before the meeting, so that if you're looking to join at that time at 8 a.m. Pacific, you'll be able to find the link on Facebook. Yeah, and if you're not on Facebook, reach out to us and we'll get you that link. Right, yeah, I wasn't on Facebook for many years. Thanks to all of those who shared links with me while I wasn't on Facebook. I'll do the same for you. (laughs) Thank you, Ben, again for being with me. Thank you, Christopher. For Latter-day Peace Studies, I'm Ben Peterson. And I'm Christopher Hurtado.